God's word, you may be seated. I just want to encourage you in a couple ways. Uh, the marriage conference that Alex was announcing, if you're married, you need to be there. Um, second is the baptisms. This is my list. Ten individuals are being baptized this afternoon. And it's appropriate for us to gather. So want all of you to be invited. Please come and uh, celebrate with us. And then, uh, yeah, let's, let's pray before we dive in. Lord, we hear these words read. And if, if we're honest, it, it, it pummels us. It sobers us. It, uh, it hits the sinner hard. Father, thank you for mercy. Yes. Thank, you. thank you for justice and righteousness of which we just read about. Thank you that we are sinners who do not stand condemned or under under the, the weight of our sin. But you, Jesus, came and bore that weight on our behalf. Thank you, Father, that we who have repented of our sins and are trusting in you for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord, it to read these words and to be sobered by them and to feel the crushing weight of them uh, we emerge full of joy. Yes. Yes. 
Because you, our God, have saved the sinner and you have restored us. And for saved sinners, that is just continues to be stunning news. God be glorified, Lord, as we preach your word. Speak to our hearts, address our souls, and where needed, let repentance come so that joy can follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Under the waves to then be restored. That's what the title is this morning, and it is. It is so good to be back with you. Here's the big idea of our, uh, of our text this morning. It's not until we can see that things are far worse than we think that we can then come to a place that is far better than we have ever imagined. I'll repeat that again in a few moments, but before we unpack that, I want to tell you two couple, two couple uh, stories. I literally have hundreds of stories in a little island called Elbow K. Elbow K is that little dot. Um, and uh, it was one of the Bahama Islands that got crushed uh, by Dorian. And if you were a surfer in the mid-80s, <clears throat> you would have known the name Frida Zamba. Anybody know the name Frida Zamba? All right, few of us. So Frida Zamba was the woman's world champion four times over. And she actually was a, a three-peat, three times in a row, 84, 85, 86. She was the woman's world champion. In 87, 88 range, I'm not sure which, but I found myself at this Elbow K and was there with three other friends on a surf trip. There were four guys in the water. Myself and three other guys were the only ones. Is a secluded beach on a secluded island is practically a deserted island, um, just a surf location. Four of us are in the water, three people paddle out. One of them was Frida Zamba. I was now surfing one of seven. One of us was a world champion. <laughs> it's a pretty crazy day. I literally have hundreds of stories from there's two years that I went on this trip. A couple other details before I get to the point of sharing some of these things. Um, in 1991, three friends and myself uh, borrowed Wayne Brooks's camper. A lot of you know Wayne. Um, borrowed his camper and chased Hurricane Bob up the eastern seaboard to Cape Hatteras. Parked in the parking lot overnight because the... Um, island had been evacuated. We parked in the parking lot by the west side of the bridge. In the morning, the sun came up. They opened the parking lot. We were the first or second vehicle across the bridge and the first four surfers in the water to surf Hurricane Bob. I tell these stories because my kids don't believe these things ever happened. <clears throat> I've surfed in the eye of a tropical storm. And I say these things to say I've surfed some fairly dangerous surf, and I think I would have said I was experienced to a point. Let's go back to Elbow K. This is uh, Elbow K, and then the next picture as well. Give you an idea of the size of Elbow K. So you see Florida. You can no longer see Elbow K in that picture. You can kind of see Freeport there. It's a dot off, off of that kind of bend towards the top. Um, to get to Elbow K, we chartered an, chartered an airplane, private plane, um, flew into Marsh Harbor. Maybe you heard about Marsh Harbor in the news uh, regarding Dorian and uh, flew into what was not really an airport. Um, we flew into a, some concrete cut out in a jungle no exaggeration, there are two wrecked planes pulled off the side of this runway as we are landing. You get to the airport, which is two hatch, thatch-roofed buildings a little bit bigger than your bathroom, um, with a counter in it, dirt floors, chickens and roosters coming in and out. That's your airport. Um, we then leave the airport, find a taxi. Taxi takes us to a harbor. At the harbor, you take a ferry, 
I don't remember how long the ferry is, but the ferry takes you to Elbow Cay. We end up in Elbow Cay. By this point, you are on a deserted island, it feels. There are a few cars on the island. There is one pay telephone. This is the 80s, so those are a thing, young people. Um, and there is no hospital on this island. It was here that um, myself and my three friends paddled out into the most dangerous surf conditions we had ever surfed. The waves towered over us. The conditions were this nasty storm surf. Uh, this is actually the day after we surfed with the world's women's champion. Had experienced a lot of storm surf in the past, but this was above my experience. And I was not good enough and not smart enough to know I wasn't good enough that I had no business paddling out on that day. The reef below us was razor sharp, and I do believe that God spared my life on that day. If you've ever had a near-death experience, there's something that happens to you. People say things like, uh, I was given a second chance, or people will say things like, I will, I will serve the Lord for the rest of my life, or I'll become a missionary. Right? Martin Luther said in his lightning storm near-death experience, I'll become a monk. And he did. He did. Have you ever been under the weight of impending doom that you begin to seriously think, you know, it might end right here? And then, well, I'll give you the end of the story. I lived. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. Woo! <laughs> You're restored and you realize life didn't end. And it has a way of waking us up. It calls us, it draws us to offer our living breath for the glory of the one who's made us. I don't have time to give you all the details of that day, but the short story is that I ended up being under the water, being pummeled wave after wave after wave, being held under the water longer than you would want to be held under the water. And there were... Just times, if it were not for the leash tied around my ankle, I wouldn't have known which way's up. The only way I knew is I'm being pulled by my floating board above me. Tumbling around, aware that I didn't have a surf helmet on and don't know where the reef is. And uh, eventually coming up for air, and we've all been in the water long enough to know what that's like when you're out of breath and you come up and you <gasps> gasp for air and immediately that quickly I'm being pummeled again by another enormous wave. You're under the water for too long and you wonder if you're going to make it and the four of us, we finally ended up back on the shore laying on the beach on our backs, exhausted, exhausted, panicked, heart pounding. I didn't literally, but you, you kissed the sand. Under the weight of the waves and then restored. There's really nothing quite like that. It's, 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 it's an odd thing, isn't it? Here's our concern in preaching through Isaiah. We don't want to leave you under the water too long. You see, Isaiah is weighty. Have you felt it yet? Week four, have you felt it? The weight of our sins gets exposed in this book. But here's the other thing. We do need to put you under the water. Because when you emerge from wave upon wave upon wave of our sin, you're then better postured to see the beauty of Christ our Savior. So again, here's the main point of our text this morning. It's not until we can see that things are far worse than we think that we can then come to a place that is far better than we imagined. Isaiah should almost be discouraging to us. It should almost be sad. It should almost be painful for us to walk through. And it should be full of hope. Yes. 
and joy and gladness and celebration. Because you see, here's the big point of the entire book. Christ willingly put himself under the weight of the waves of our sin. And he went to the cross and he died under the weight of our sins that we might emerge in new life in him. So this book can discourage, but we don't end there. We end in joy, the joy of our salvation. Point number one, our sinful condition is worse than we think. Our sinful condition is worse than we think. Here, Isaiah is making his case against the rebellious, listen, people of God. When you're reading Isaiah, I like to refer to it, 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 it's the church kids. And I don't mean that's the young people. I mean, this is, this is the people who grew up in, in godly homes. This is the people who grew up hearing of the salvation of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the faithfulness of God. These, these are, in their day, church kids. You get the point. I want you to feel the weight of these verses. Verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. The people of God who should have known better. The people of God who once were the faithful city. Now this isn't a being addressed, I like to say, outside these four walls. He's not addressing the surrounding nations. He's addressing, again, the people of God. He's addressing the people inside the four walls. He's addressing us. The people of God who should know better who once were the faithful city, has become a whore. In one sense, it would be bad if we read this and we thought, oh, he's addressing the world. He's addressing the surrounding nations. He's addressing their enemies. We might think, wow, that's a difficult message. But it's the people of God. It's the redeemed people of God who have drifted from God. It's, it's not that they don't believe in God. They do. They're, they're, they're continuing in their celebration of the festivals. Alex preached about that last week. They have a, they have a, a picture of religiousness about them. They, they know God. They would probably say of themselves they're serving God. It was the faithful city, the people of God. They, 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 they are living in days of prosperity. King Uzziah is king, and those are days of comfort and peace and prosperity for Israel. Um, but rather than that, leveraging them to be praise be to God. Look at, look at what God has brought to us. Look at the blessing of God around us. Rather than that, they spurn God and they reject God and they serve false gods. It's a crazy thing that they, we do. Perhaps they would say some things that we hear in our day. Maybe, maybe a little worldliness isn't that bad. I mean, we all make mistakes. And nobody perfect. The big guy upstairs will forgive me. I hope he'll forgive me on that day. I'm sure that he will. I'm certainly not as bad as that person. Hear how the Lord puts it through his spokesman, Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't hold back. How the faithful city has become a whore. If you are our guest, thanks for being here this morning. I would pray you might come back next week difficult thing to hear, I think, if I was a guest. The people of God have 
prostituted themselves, spiritually speaking. The imagery is that they have left their first love. They have left the God they love, the God who has saved them, the God who has delivered them, the God who has been faithful to them. They have left God who is their husband and they have sold themselves to other lovers, other gods. They have whored themselves. They've given themselves to the gods of the surrounding nations. They no longer give themselves to God who saves them. The second part of 21, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. She was that because they were in a covenant relationship with God who is justice and who is righteousness. They knew God. They believed in God. They weren't um, denying God. They were rather than denying God, they were distancing themselves from God. They kept God at arm's distance. Perhaps maybe they would say, let's not be too radical about this God thing. We don't want to be overboard when it comes to this God thing. Let's not get carried away. And so what they once were, faithful, justice, and righteous in the community, they no longer are, and the pure has become impure. Verse 22, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Society's silver at this time was this fine liquor. And, it's, and what, he's, what he's saying there is that that's, that's become tainted. It's been diluted. It's, it's literally become poisoned. And you as a people of God are to be something that's to be uh, sweet tasting to the society, to the culture that's around you. You've become a poison to that very culture is what he's saying. You used to promote justice and righteousness, but now you've, you've lost love for neighbor. You've lost love for God, which always leads to loss of love for neighbor. And they themselves have become rebellious. They who are entrusted to promote justice and righteousness by their own greed promote an injustice, a, a defeating of the weak, that is around them. Appeals have been made to them by other prophets of the Lord. Israel could repent, but these church kids, those who have a show of worship, a religion of worship, a duty of worship, are so far lost that God must undo them to then rebuild them. Let me remind you from last week, verse 11. Let's back up. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. And on and on. He ends verse 14. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Wow. I am over your religious show of worship. If that's what you've got, if that's what you're offering me is your little dutiful festivals and celebrations and sacrifices dutifully to me while at the same time you're just craving, lusting for the things of this world, then let's call it what it is, is what Isaiah is saying through the Lord. And he's saying, we translate that to today, I don't need you to come to church. Don't come to church for just the sake of this religious performing uh, ceremony. I don't need your offering, your finances. Because the Lord is after our hearts. And they have prostituted themselves to other gods. And because of that, we'll see in a moment, judgment is coming. It didn't have to come, though. 
They, they could have repented and they could have served the Lord, but God, how do I describe, in his mercy, will love us enough to bring adversity into our lives, which will then become the impetus of our restoration. Our revival comes through the fire. And we don't like that, right? Like they want to live under King Uzziah who brought them comfort and peace and he's our man. And in chapter six, we'll see it begins with, in the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, right? You're Some of you are familiar with Isaiah. We'll get there. Eventually we'll get there. We're going to start picking up our pace next week and then we'll slow down in six and then we'll pick up our pace and we'll slow down in seven and nine. Chapter nine will be our Advent season this December. Friends, God loved them and he will love us enough to put us through the fire to then restore us. They didn't love God which meant they promoted an injustice towards others. Verse 22, again, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. We'll hold off going too far there to verse 24. See, we're to... We're to love God. We're to be fully devoted to our God who has saved us, who has been faithful to us, who, who mercifully has redeemed us. We're to be more than dutiful, performing religious people. We've been given a relationship with our God, our Savior. So we don't just do things to just do things. We don't just serve in the children's ministry to just, well, it's got to serve in the children's ministry. It's my duty. No, we love God. And out of that love for God, there's to be this love for people. And they've lost that. That's what he's saying in all of that wording. I can't reread it, but you can go back. And what Isaiah will show us is that love for people is a desire to help the weak. It's a beautiful video of the orphan guy. Their welfare ought to matter to us because we're lovers of God. And a culture of idolatry will create a culture of selfishness. Whereas gospel Content is to create a gospel culture. We're the weak and God loved us. God help me to love the weak around us. And so he'll bring suffering to his people. He will bring adversity. It is judgment that is, it is terrifying. And he will bring that to then call them back to worship him with a true heart, which will bring about a true love for neighbor. Number two, God's response to the present state of the people of God. This is verses 24 and 25. Or, subtitled, God is willing to make our circumstances worse than we would imagine. It's a tough book, Isaiah. When we announced it a few months ago, we're going to preach through Isaiah. You clapped and cheered. <laughs> Here we are. Here's the result of their posture. Verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. 
gasp for air and come with me as we get pummeled under the waves. See, what Isaiah is doing here is he's loading up divine titles. I do think it's to overwhelm us. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. These are awesome waves that are pounding against us. Perhaps in the previous section, maybe in our self-righteousness, we think we can jump over that little wave as we're playing around at the ocean. But this is a cleanup wave. This one catches you unaware and it throws you backwards and you're tumbling on our little shore as he loads up the titles here, divine titles. The Lord, the Lord of hosts. That is to say, here's a translation, buckle up. Judgment is coming. The effect of the phrases in verse 24 is, therefore the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the, the sovereign one, the master the Lordship of God Himself, complete master over everything. It is to say, who in the world would be so foolish as to defy Him, the Lord of hosts? The Lord of armies is coming. He is marching against you, Israel. Who would be so arrogant to worship God formally or from a performance, or even from a, a distance. I recognize that you are God, but I will keep my distance from you at the same time. Who, who would be so arrogant to worship God in that sort of way? That's the sense here when he loads up the divine titles. Why would the people of God, why would the church kids not pursue the Lord? Why keep him, well, just close enough that if we really get in trouble, then I'll call out to the Lord. I will, I will not worship God, but I'll be happy to use God like the genie in the bottle. And when I'm really in trouble, I'll rub the bottle and he's supposed to be there, right? To grant me my three wishes. Where are my three wishes? Isn't he supposed to be here to grant my three wishes? And the tone here of these verses from Isaiah is, is this. Who would be so arrogant to treat the faithful God in such a manner? To keep God near, near enough to pull him out just when we need him. He further adds, the mighty one of Israel, the mighty one, the mighty. We like to sing about the mighty one who saves. We usually don't sing about the mighty one who judges. He's both. In this text. It's not the enemies of Israel that will feel the heat of God's wrath. It's the people of God who have made themselves the enemy of God. Israel has it backwards. They think, look at our prosperity. Look at how, how things are going so well for us under King Uzziah. Look, look, God clearly is blessing us. Let's keep him at a distance and we'll worship these other gods. We'll keep God in our back pocket. He is my ticket. I'm safe from judgment. And that's all that really matters. I want to be safe from judgment. And they don't realize they're not safe from judgment. And Isaiah comes to them and Isaiah comes to us to bring us this warning. Verse 25 is God's response. I will turn my hand against you. Verse 26. What? And I will restore your judges as at the first. God turns his hand against them to then restore them. Point number three, the result of God's restoration program in the people of God. Let's read it in full. Verse 26. I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called. This is amazing. You catch this? Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Wait, what? 
Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. Wow. Come up for air and take a breath with me. You know what he's saying there? Judgment will not have the final word. Ray Ortland says this. He says, but Isaiah is implying that one God acting in one way is able to accomplish two things at once. When God turns his hand against us, it isn't a disaster. It's an act of restoration. That's exactly the case we're making this morning. The discipline of God achieves just what, it, what he intends in purification and in restoration, both at the same time. The final word, church, is not judgment. In that God's purpose was never to destroy his people. It is, it is not Ben. It never will be his final purpose to destroy his people. His purpose is to have a people. His purpose is that he would restore a people to serve him. Now, the sad state of our sinfulness is that we, we, we often go through the adversity and fail to see God's faithfulness in the middle of it. Or fail to repent to then be restored. But in verse 26... 26, hope begins to emerge on the page in the face of the suffering and the adversity. God's hand is on them not to destroy them, but to restore them. They will be the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And we ought to be, you know, if you place yourself, if you're an old covenant believer here, the next question is, well, how's he going to do that? How's he going to restore these people? How will he restore you and I when we drift prone to wander? Again, his purpose is always to bring us to him, not to destroy us. There would not be a few in the room this morning who are suffering. All of us have been there at some point in time. Listen to me. Try to say this with tact and love and care for whatever any of us might be going through. But God's heart for you and I is so great. He will allow, he will bring to you the day of suffering to then bring you to himself. And it's a merciful thing of God to do that. In other words, he didn't leave them to themselves. That's terrifying. That God would not leave you to yourself in the midst of your prosperity. Oh, you live in America. I mean, look at all the prosperity around us. Thank God for the adversity. Because in the prosperity... I don't need God. In the prosperity, I live indifferent to God. In the prosperity, it's a rare thing in prosperity that we grow in God. And so his purpose in our suffering is to create in us this heart of worship, this, this, this yanking us out of this religious repetition where our hearts are distant from God. He's going to bring this adversity to them and he brings it to us to wake us up out of the doldrums to become, to emerge worshipers of God. You see, difficult circumstances reveal I need God in a way that my prosperity never does. 
Isaiah the prophet is calling the people of God in this day to look forward. How will we be restored? How will we once again the city of righteousness? And he's calling us to look backwards. How are we to be called righteous and faithful? And he calls them to look forward to the Messiah. And we are called to look backward to the Messiah who came and willingly allowed himself to be judged for us. Christ was judged in our place. To what extent, what is the purpose of God in that he would bring the adversity? I'm saying to us this morning, he brings the adversity to us to, to, to bring us through that we might emerge from that place of adversity as wholehearted worshipers of him. That's what he's about. And he loves us enough to take us through that. That's what Isaiah is bringing to us. But I want to ask you, to what extent is he committed to your salvation? To what extent? How far will our God go? Because I don't like this adversity thing. This is how far he will go. He will send his son to not only save us, but to bring us through the fire of eternal judgment that we could not bear and bring us to be his worshipers who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor as themselves. How, to what extent will God go? Well, saying to us that it is merciful of God that he allows or he even brings the adversity into our lives that we might emerge restored. I'm talking about a revived heart, a revived desire to worship the Lord, to love God, because that's where we grow in that place of difficulty. That's where we start to call out to him. That's where we see our need for him. But how far will he go further than that? Yes, he will. He will put his own son under the overwhelming waves of judgment. He will bury his son with his own wrath. When we talk about the cross, we're not simply talking about the physical pain of the cross. As, as incredibly physically painful, the Romans knew how to kill people. But that's not the extent that we're talking. We're talking the father turned his face away from the son. We're talking Jesus bore our sins on his shoulders and he received the full blow of the father's wrath for sins that you and I have committed. He judged sin on the cross through his son. To what extent is he committed to your salvation? To the extent that he will bring the greatest adversity this earth has ever known to himself. Verse 27, here's the goal of the judgment. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Zion is imagery for Jerusalem and it's to say that the people of God, you're not without hope. You, you will not be done away with because it feels like it when you're under these waves and you're being pummeled and pummeled and you come up gasping for air and you're hit again and you're being pummeled and you're being pummeled. You are not without hope, church. She, Israel, will not be done away with. God will restore a people. It's what Isaiah will call a remnant. There will be this remnant of people who, verse 27, repent. 
they repent. And through that remnant of people, a savior will be born in that line. These people will be kept for the Lord. Christ will come through the remnant. Listen, we, we often ask as we're preparing to preach, we, we're trying to think through different aspects of a sermon. We like to ask, what's the application? What are we supposed to do with this? Here's your application. Repent where needed. Repent and then be restored. Here's the application. Joyfully worship the Lord. Joyfully celebrate God's goodness. I was thinking this morning, wasn't worship good this morning as we sang the singing of worship? And wasn't it great? Like, it was just fun to see like, wow, we got a full band here this morning. Alex is back from school. He's leading some of the songs. And it's just a, and, and it was just a responsiveness in the words of the songs and we're responding and you're just hearing different ones shouting out to the Lord. And my thought was this, there is no shout that's too loud. It is a, there's no shout that raises to some level that God says, ease up there. It wasn't that big of a deal what I did for you. I didn't accomplish all that much. Is there, is there any slapping, we call it clapping of the hands, that is too exaggerated, that is too radical, that would communicate, ease up there, my friend. There's none. There's the application. Repent where we need to repent. You can do that right now, right where we sit. And be restored. Amen. And joyfully, joyfully worship your God yes. who judged his own son. We are more concerned about the judgment that comes to us than we are the judgment that he brought to himself. God help us. Last point, it is brief. What about the unrepentant? I do not say this casually. I think if the previous verses, previous points were overwhelming waves in the ocean, I soberly, soberly want you to hear the rest of these verses as in my appeal to you. Do not be stubborn in your rebellion. I'm appealing. I plead with you to repent. Verse 28. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. So there's a contrast. Verse 27, those who repent, righteousness. Verse 28, rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. What is all going on here? Verse 28 is those who continue to reject God, rebel against God, those who refuse the mercy of God, they will be broken. Listen, though there is much hope, we've pointed out the hope in chapter one. There's a lot of places that we can point to. Don't misunderstand. Though God offers salvation, though God can blot out your sins and that they can be white as snow, though those are found in chapter one, though he offers salvation, there is another reality that continued obstinate refusal to repent and turn to the Lord will end in final and utter destruction. It's horrific. It seems as if Isaiah is wanting to be completely clear. It's like he's saying, let there be no misunderstanding. Do not presume on the grace of God. Do not take the grace and the mercy of God for granted. You see, Isaiah leaves nobody indifferent. All of us must come to this place. Oh God, I repent and I'm restored and I joyfully worship you or I reject you. And I, I reject your offer of mercy and grace. But church, let's stop with the nonsense of indifference. As if that was a category. 
Indifference in itself is rejection of God. Verse 29, what's going on with the oaks and gardens? Well, it's probably a reference to the places of worship where people worship the false gods. These were considered sacred grounds, these oaks and gardens. They've left God who created the trees and gardens to worship the false gods of trees and gardens. And it says it's to their shame. I'm not sure what verse that is. 29, I think. It's to their shame, it's to their blushing that this is what they've chosen. They've chosen to worship the created thing than the God who created the thing. How foolish and how shameful is this shame and blushing to worship what God created. To do so is verse 30, to become the withering oak and the dried up garden. Those who appear strong and powerful will one day be stripped bare, verse 31. They will be exposed to not be mighty at all. And the strong shall become tender. We thought we thought we were the mighty, the mighty one of Israel. No, that's the Lord. They'll become tender, meaning the only good thing that they, they'll become is for, for burning. It's a harsh word. It's difficult. Well, left to myself, I'd rather not preach that section. But it's right to preach that section. through the prophet Isaiah through his word and the strong shall become tender in his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them see it's not until we can see that things are far worse than we think that we can then come to a place that is far better than we've ever imagined I want to invite you that as we sing this next song it'll be new to, to many of us you can repent right where you sit. It's appropriate. It's appropriate for two things, well, many things to be happening while we sing this song. Repentance would be appropriate. Loud singing would be appropriate. Let's stand together and worship our God.